This is TechSnap, episode 378. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on August 2nd, 2018. It is brought to you by our three great sponsors, IX Systems, Ting, and DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is my co-presenter, the trainer, the architect, and the presenter. It's Mr. Payne, Mr. West Payne. Hello, Wes. Why, hello there, Chris. <laughs> hello, Wes. It's like we were just talking the other day. Hey, what do you say? Let's kick things off with a couple of warm-up stories, one that might have just impacted the audience. Telegram faced a bit of an issue when a bunch of messages went the long way, and they were routed via Iran. Now, this has been flagged by OpenDNS's BGP Mon project as a possible BGP hijack. But it also could have just been a simple case of a sysadmin making a typo, as we all do with those fat fingers of ours from time to time. <laughs> we do have the fat fingers. <laughs> the redirection of packets only lasted about two hours and 15 minutes, so it's not really clear, you know, was this a malicious target against a particular individual, or was it like a legitimate configuration mistake? Right, if it was censorship, you would kind of expect it would still be ongoing, or at least be more than a couple of hours. What's the point, otherwise? Exactly. Essentially what happened is that 10 of Telegram's more than 100 route prefixes were run through networks in Iran rather than the normal network path that they usually go. What caused this sudden change? Well, it was triggered by a BGP announcement by the Iranian telecommunications company, telecommunications company of Iran, and their ASN 58224 network. Maybe we should pause right here and kind of remind everybody what BGP is. It's the Border Gateway Protocol. It's a mechanism that, in a way, glues the Internet together as we know it. It's used by the Internet's routers and switches to direct packets of data around the world so that when you, say, try to visit a website, your computer or your phone connects to the correct server and is routed in the right spot. Yeah, you may be familiar with, you know, getting getting routes just from your mainstream one upstream ISP that you probably have at home, or maybe manually adding things to a route table here or there. Well, BGP is the system that allows that to happen in an automated fashion at large in the big internet exchanges that run the backbones of the internet, right? So if you're an ISP, you're running your own autonomous system, BGP lets you exchange and basically tell upstreams and downstreams like, hey, here's everything I know how to get to, and here's everything that you can get to through me. And that spread out nature that Wes was just talking about is why these BGP fat thumb events are extremely common. The BGP stream homepage lists 1,680 events since June 16th, of which 223 are described as a BGP leak and 540 are described as possible hijacks. The main difference between those two is that a leak just happens by accident. And a hijack is at least suspected to be an intentional rerouting of traffic. And you can kind of guess how a leak might be possible because in many cases, a lot of these autonomous systems have multiple connections, multiple peers, multiple upstream ISPs. And so through them, you could get to most of the internet, but that's just not, you know, that's not actually the systems they're in charge of. Those are not their routes and they shouldn't be advertising them. Occasionally they do. And that's, that's what qualifies as a leak. Now, if it's intentional or malicious, it's a hijack. 
So BGP leaks and BGP hijacks are actual technical definitions. Or at least something close to that. <laughs> as close as it might get with BGP. <laughs> exactly. I kid, I kid. It's, I don't mean to hate on BGP. It has just caused me so much pain over the years. It is definitely showing its age. Um, it's been criticized for being too easy for the careless and malicious to pipe internet traffic where it shouldn't go. And we see it fairly regularly. Now, on the scale of the whole internet, it's not the biggest problem we have. And it's not something that causes problems every day. But... I think we're hitting the point where the sort of like federated open access best intentions policy that started off, you know, as we were designing these networks for the first time, doesn't necessarily scale super well in today's security conscious 2018 internet. And it seems more than just coincidence that the traffic ended up getting routed through Iran in this circumstance. And for me, as an end user on Monday, it meant that I got a few moments of total serenity and peace while Telegram essentially went offline <laughs> because they just totally overwhelmed the network. Yeah, it gets especially tricky, I think, in this intersection between state-controlled entities and just what would be you know, normal internet operations and where those two commingle, the sort of power we have that normally works fine between two private entities, well, that can be distrusted. There are some initiatives such as the mutually agreed norms for routing security, or Artemis Project, automatic and real-time detection and mitigation system. And these are various systems that have been proposed to improve upon BGP or replacements for BGP. But as you know, Chris, internet infrastructure changes very slowly, and there's a lot of sunk costs here. So whether or not we'll see anything better in the near future... I have my doubts. <laughs> yeah, I have my doubts as well. While we're still in the warm-up, let's talk about the clever folks over at UpGuard. Their cyber risk team is now reporting that a misconfigured cloud-based file repository hmm, exposed the names, addresses, account details, and account personal identification numbers, a.k.a. the PINs, of as many as 14 million Verizon customers. To make it worse, the cloud server in question was owned and operated by, yeah, that's right, a third-party vendor. In this no. case, Nice Systems. With a name like that, how could they misconfigure things? You've probably already guessed that, in this case, the data repository in question is, in fact, oh yes, AWS's S3 service. Another bucket exposed to the public? Never, Wes. No. Yeah, it turns out Verizon, which is the U.S.'s largest wireless carrier, uses nice systems technology in its back office and call center operations. So it's not, you know, right on the ground, the main interconnect for the LTE networks, but it is used for a lot of administrative purposes. Yeah, I joke, but NICE is actually pretty large. It's not just Verizon. The Paris-based telecommunications corporation Orange also is a, quote, nice partner. Beyond the normal risks of exposed names, addresses, and account information that you see in a ton of different breaches, this case is particularly concerning because it includes Verizon account PIN codes, which are used to verify customers and in this case are listed alongside the associated phone number. Now, if you have the phone number and the PIN code and account information, you could call in or walk into a Verizon store and gain access to that account, switch SIM cards, the number, or do all kinds of malicious activity. And on top of that, sticking with our overall theme for this episode, given the increasing reliance upon mobile communications for two-factor authentication, this is extremely concerning to me. So I guess what are the details of what UpGuard found? Well, I'm sad to say that as usual, 
it was unfortunately pretty easy. UpGuard discovered a S3 bucket that was set to public, and therefore the many terabytes of data contained therein was easily downloadable by anyone who had the S3 URL. The subdomain in this case is verizon-sftp, so it's really an indication of the file's corporate origins that definitely sounds like an interconnect to me, right? So some third party was like, hey, we're going we're gonna to put some stuff or, or we're going to pull stuff from your SFTP account, we'll stick it in our bucket, and then probably they're slurping that in, going to do some analytics that they sell to Verizon. But of course, they didn't follow standard security agreements. Inside that repository, there's a few surreptitiously named folders, things like January 2017 or voice session filtered.zip. Each of the month named folders contains directories corresponding to each day of the month, and then within each of those day folders are a couple dozen or so compressed files. By every indication, this is a repository for the automated daily logging of files that are just then, you know, sucked up by the nice systems and used for whatever they're doing with it. Right, and once unzipped, the contents of these daily logging folders are revealed to be pretty sizable text files. In fact, some are as large as 23 gigabytes of text. Oh boy. They did a little analysis, and the general structure looks like basically giant text blocks that are composed of voice recognition log files and records of individual calls to customer support lines, including fields like time in queue and transfer to agent. And this is sort of in line with the services that NICE offers. Again, these back-end call center services. Yeah, you know, when you're a giant company like Verizon, you have a ton of different call centers. You're really trying to manage a lot of customer interactions, and you want those high-level aggregate numbers of things like, you know, how well are all of my customer support agents doing? How long do people wait on hold lines? I mean, one, just holistically, you want that. And then two, you need some numbers when angry people tweet at you. To that end, these text records contain all kinds of other fields, you know, names, addresses, phone numbers, but also things like frustration level or has Fios pending orders. So clearly there's some, uh, you know, there's some common failure modes they're really looking at in here. There has also been some level of masking so that some important details were intentionally left out, but surprisingly, that's not universal. So they've masked some details, but then left things like the pin codes totally unmasked. It just seems like sloppy work to me. It's definitely a system built around convenience. And that's what really this all comes down to. The critical data repository in question was exposed not by the enterprise holding the primary responsibility for the information, in this case, Verizon, but by a third-party vendor to the enterprise. It was publicly accessible on an AWS S3 bucket owned by a third-party vendor, in this case, Nice Systems, that revealed the sensitive personal details of Verizon customers. And Nice Systems is indeed a company that provides technology of a particular use to call centers. It's probably a good idea to know if the person on hold has a grievance. In fact, one of the fields in there is, are they waiting for Fios changes and the level of frustration that the customer is experiencing? That is useful information. And SEC filings have revealed that Nice Systems calls Verizon a main partner. Like, that's, that is their main source of revenue. Why they're saving all of this information to an S3 bucket that's publicly available, who knows? But often in the cases 
of these kinds of stories. It simply just comes down to negligence. Yep. And it's hard. You know, I'm sure that Verizon made them sign a large agreement dictating various security requirements. And even when you've been audited, there's just so many ways, especially in this cloud and public facing world where even if, you know, the last time you were audited, you were secure. One person with enough access can spin up a new bucket, not follow whatever document and procedures that they were supposed to, and then you're in a system like this. And it doesn't really matter that, you know, maybe there's a policy where they have to pay Verizon. This is just bad PR for Verizon. And it's a, it's a hard world where you can't really trust anyone that you work with. As always, we will have more details in the show notes, techsnap.systems slash 378, including a link to some visualizations, which always help drive the point home. Now, we've been discussing the various ways side-channel attacks and speculative execution can betray your trust in your CPU ever since the Spectre and Meltdown attacks were disclosed earlier this year. The initial exploits, though, required an attacker to be able to run code on your system. This made browsers vulnerable, and of course cloud hosts were susceptible as well. But outside those situations, the impact to your average everyday computer user it seemed relatively limited. But now the impact might be a little larger. Researchers from Graz University of Technology, including one of the original Meltdown discoverers, have described NetSpectre, a fully remote attack based on Spectre. But with NetSpectre, an attacker can remotely read the memory of a victim's system without running any code on that system. Okay, well that just sounds dangerous. Up to now, all the variants of the Spectre attacks have followed a pretty common set of principles. Each processor has an architectural behavior, aka the documented behavior that describes how the instructions work and that programmers depend on to write their programs, right? These are the instructions that you write your program against, or well, the compiler writes. And then there's the micro-architectural behavior, which is the way the actual implementation happens behind the scenes. These can diverge in subtle ways, and that's really been a large part of the problems we've seen with Meltdown and Spectre. For example, architecturally, a program that loads a value from a particular memory address will wait until that address is known before trying to perform the load, right? That makes sense. That's how you would naively write it. Microarchitecturally, however, the processor might try to speculatively guess at the address so that it can start loading the value, which is slow, even before it's absolutely certain what address that code wants to load from. Now that's the whole speculative execution problem we've described before. If the processor guesses wrong, it will ignore the guessed at value and perform the load again, this time with the correct address. So from the high-level perspective, your code doesn't have to care. This all happens behind the scenes. But the tricky part here is that faulty guess will disturb other parts of the processor. Usually, in the case of Spectre, the contents of the cache. So that's just the same thing that's been happening since we first talked about Spectre. NetSpectre builds on these principles. It just has to work a lot harder to exploit them. If you take malicious JavaScript as an example from the previous attacks, exploiting it is fairly straightforward. The JavaScript developer has relatively fine control over the instructions the processor executes. I mean, yes, it goes through the JavaScript runtime, but if you're clever about it, you can get the runtime to execute the instructions that you want. So you can therefore perform speculative execution and then measure differences in cache performance and, if you're clever, extract information that you shouldn't have access to. With remote execution, though, that's a lot harder. The code to perform a vulnerable speculative execution, aka the leak gadget as described by the researchers, 
and the code to disclose the differences in microarchitectural state over the network, the transmit gadget, have to both already exist somewhere on the remote system, such that the remote attacker can actually reliably call them. So the researchers found that both of these parts could be found in networked applications. Uh, For the network attack, rather than measuring, say, cache performance, the attack measures the time taken to respond to a network request. The disturbance to the microarchitectural state is such that it can cause a measurably different response time to the request. As they put it in the paper, we show that memory access latency, in general, can be reflected in the latency of network requests. Hence, we demonstrate that it's possible for an attacker to distinguish cache hits from misses on specific cache lines remotely by measuring and averaging over a large number of measurements. And a large number of measurements does mean it will take more time. But then again, when you're remote and you're just teasing a box over the network, you tend to have more time. Yeah, you know, as long as you're not triggering something suspicious, then most people aren't auditing every single network request or auditing them at all. Now, two different remote measurements were developed in this case. The first is a variation on the cache timing approach already demonstrated with existing Spectre attacks. The attacker makes the remote system perform a large data transfer, which fills the processor's cache with useless data. The attacker then calls the leak gadget that will speculatively load, or not load, some value in the processor's cache. And then that's followed by triggering the transmit gadget. If the speculative execution loaded the value, then the transmit gadget transmission will be fast. If it didn't, it will be slow. And there you go. That's your information leak. Yeah, and what I found fascinating reading through this is that there's actually a second measurement which doesn't use the cache at all. Instead, it relies on the behavior of the AVX2 vector instruction set that's available on Intel processors. We won't get into the full details today, but go see the show notes. You can go read the paper. There's a lot more information. This AVX2 side channel was found to be quite a bit faster than the cache side channel attack as well, but realistically overall both are very slow well the elephant in the room everybody listening knows network stacks are complicated and network traffic makes network latency variable but in spite of this the side channel attacks do work even on the local network the researchers needed about a hundred thousand measurements to discern the value of a single bit so think about that for a second Yeah, if you take that up to a larger scale, and just to make it a little more reliable and consistent, they used about a million measurements per bit on a gigabit network on an Intel-based system. Using the cache side channel, this enabled an average rate of data extraction of about one byte every 30 minutes. Now, of course, as we said, the AVX side channel is a little bit faster, one byte every eight minutes, but that's still pretty slow. Well, I think maybe the good news here is the systems that would be the most susceptible to attack are the hardest to exploit. Cloud systems, a.k.a. systems over the internet, are going to be much harder to pull off on this particular attack because of all of the things in the middle, the latency-inducing, annoying things in the middle of the internet that I would imagine make this much harder. Exactly. For your normal TechSnap listener, there's probably not a whole lot that this attack adds that you should worry about. But if you do have a network computer with highly sensitive secrets, well, one, maybe don't network it. But And two, this just further erodes your fundamental trust in keeping networked computers safe. There's just so much here that you would have thought, you know, even with all your best security, the fact that just with network responses, you can measure 
actual latency on cache lines, that's kind of crazy from a fundamental perspective. And I don't think before, you know, this year, last year, many people would even have conceived that an attack like that might be possible. Now, of course, as we've talked about, this is a tiny amount of data extraction. So unless you have really sensitive, really small secrets, it's probably not a direct risk. And it looks like a lot of the same countermeasures that are effective against the normal Spectre attacks are also effective against NetSpectre. So hopefully something that we see fixed in future processor versions, but that might take a while. Dio.co slash snap. Pay less and deploy more. Build better applications faster with industry-leading price and performance with predictable costs. That's DigitalOcean for your infrastructure in a nutshell. My favorite system is just three cents an hour. That'll get you four gigabytes of RAM, two virtual CPUs, an 80 gigabyte SSD, three terabytes of transfer, all for three cents an hour. Everything is enterprise grade SSDs, 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisors, cloud firewalls, monitoring and alerting built in, simple yet powerful management at every level, from setting up your SSH keys for login to forwarding your DNS to the right box and setting up subdomains. It's so straightforward with DigitalOcean, it'll save you time. And they have an easy to use, well documented API, global data centers, so they got data centers all around the world, and with these super fast enterprise grade SSDs and the really fast connections into the hypervisors, you're going to have excellent performance. And they recently just posted a guide on using a CDN to speed up static content delivery, and there is a lot of options you have here. When you look at DigitalOcean's compelling pricing, plus the fact they have data centers all over the world, I encourage you to go to DigitalOcean and play around. And if you go to do.co slash snap, you'll get a $100 credit for 60 days. You got to go to our URL, do.co slash snap, get that $100 credit, play around for a while, and see what I've been talking about. And TechSnap is also made possible by ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. That's where you go to learn more and support iX Systems and this here show. Go grab their white paper to help your enterprise make the switch to iX Systems. Everybody's talking about the cloud today. Well, why not build your own with iX as your partner? They'll white glove build a solution for you so it's custom built for your needs. They know how to empower hardware with open source software. You know, companies often find, and I hear this from developers all the time on our Coda Radio program, that the cloud is great, quote unquote cloud is great, for bootstrapping and getting off the ground. But pretty quickly, as you start to see any kind of traction and any kind of success, costs become excessive and they grow quick. So many folks end up looking to lower expenses, but try to keep their data protected, have high availability and great performance, and offer some of the same feature set and API-type functionality that these cloud services offer. Well, guess what? TrueNAS in the true rack will lower your total cost of ownership by 70% compared to something like AWS. They have all the data on their website. You can check it out at ixsystems.com slash cloud. Now, you know that TrueNAS is based on FreeNAS. That's the world's number one open source software-defined storage. Of course, it's powered by OpenZFS under the hood. You can improve your backup to reliability. It has self-healing bit rot mitigation, unlimited snapshots, replication, and of course, industry standard. AES encryption. 
You can mitigate ransomware attacks and, of course, be prepared for massive disasters while also offering tons of the functionality that the cloud services offer at a 70% lower cost. And that's something IX would love to talk to you about. And that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg of the type of things they can offer you. If you need a hardware and software solution in your enterprise, consider IX. From a small business to huge enterprises, IX has it covered. From Jupiter Broadcasting's garage storage system to NASA, IX has it covered. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. And a tremendous thank you to Ting, techsnap.ting.com. It's smarter than unlimited. If you use less, you pay less. The average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month because it's pay for what you use. A fair price for however much you talk, message, or data you use. I love this system. It's got nationwide coverage, no contracts, no determination fees, and I can use it in my small business to give folks phone service when they arrive in town, or when I'm traveling, I can bring a CDMA MiFi and a GSM MiFi with me. And that really gives me the confidence that I'm going to have connectivity regardless of where I go. But what's great about Ting is because I only pay for what I use, it's not like I have to be sitting here cutting $120 checks every month to keep these things going. It's just $6 for the line and then my usage on top of that. Plus, they have a really good control panel where you can manage all of this stuff. Turn services off, set usage alerts, anything like that. And then if you ever get stuck, their customer service is next level. And you can buy devices directly from Ting or bring your own device. If you bring a device, again, CDMA and GSM means there's a lot that they will just accept. Just check their BYOD page. But you bring a device, you get $25 in service credit. And if you've decided it's time to pull the trigger and say, get the iPhone 10, Ting is offering for a limited time $300 in Ting credit when you buy an iPhone 10 from the Ting shop. Then you'd own that sucker outright. It'd be like yours, straight up. And you get $300 in credit, which if $25 is going to last you more than your first month, I can only imagine $300. <laughs> so go check out Ting. It's a great service. I've been using it for more than four years. Absolutely happy with it for myself, my friends, my family, and my coworkers. TechSnap.Ting.com. Reddit caught everyone's attention this week with a newly disclosed breach that stole password data and private messages. And it's teaching Reddit a lesson that our listeners have probably known for years. Two-factor authentication that uses SMS or phone calls is only just slightly better than no two-factor at all. In a post published on August 1st, Reddit said an attacker breached several employee accounts in mid-June. The attacker then accessed a complete copy of backup data spanning from the site's launch in 2005 to May 2007. So not the most recent data, but probably a big chunk of data. It included cryptographically salted and hashed password data from that period, along with corresponding usernames, email addresses, and all user content. Yes, that's right, including private messages. In more recent data, the attacker also obtained email digests that were sent between June 3rd and June 17th of 2018. So you might be wondering, what's a digest? I know I was. So the digest, according to Reddit, includes usernames that are associated with email addresses, along with Reddit-suggested posts from safe-for-work subreddits that you were subscribed to. If you go look at the show notes, you can see the actual post by Reddit. They've got a link to a sample of what one of these digests might actually look like. Oh, okay. TechSnap.Systems slash 378 for those. It definitely seems like Reddit has learned something from this incident, which is good. They write, Already having our primary access points for code and infrastructure behind strong authentication requiring two-factor, we learned that SMS-based authentication is not nearly as secure as we would hope, 
and the main attack was via SMS interception. And if you recall, going back to our warm-up story, the Verizon leak that recently happened because of the leaky S3 bucket that NICE set up, it had the pins in there, and it had the numbers in there. So you could easily intercept these SMS two-factor authentications. And Reddit says, we're pointing out right now this, so that way we can encourage everyone out there to move to a token-based two-factor authentication system, not SMS. Yeah, they're really susceptible to a variety of attacks if you're going to rely on one-time passwords sent by SMS. The first is just by obtaining control of a target's cell phone number. If you can use some sort of stolen data credentials or you just happen to have some of their information, if you can convince their carrier that you are them, you can often just get that number transferred to a new SIM card, transferred to your phone, transferred to a fake line, whatever. Once you've got that, well, you've got the code. Really, the point, though, here is use a more robust mechanism of two-factor authentication, something that is perhaps even physical that could connect directly to the computer you're logging into. Yeah, these days, there are a ton of different hardware devices with cryptographic keys embedded directly within them. If you use this form of authentication, it's far superior to SMS. It's much more difficult to be phished, divulged, or intercepted. It, it's just a, it's another layer of security that is far and above anything you can get if you're relying on cell phone networks. Like I said earlier, this is not really news to our audience, and enterprises have known this for a while. Just a week or so before this Reddit news went public, a Google spokesperson said that security keys now form the basis of all account access at Google. Quote, we have had no reported or confirmed account takeovers since implementing security keys at Google. According to the spokesperson, users might be asked to authenticate using their security key from many different apps or reasons, but it all depends on the security of the app and the risk of the user at that point in time. Sounds pretty good, right? Well, now you can get that security for yourself. Google just announced its new Titan Security Key, a device that protects your accounts by restricting two-factor authentication to the physical world. Well, either way, you two-factor, this is a hot market. In fact, today, just seven hours ago as we record, Cisco announced it is buying Duo Security for $2.35 billion in cash. Now, Duo Security was founded in 2010 and went on to raise $121 million through a couple of rounds of funding The company has 700 employees. It's got offices in the U.S. and in London. And it's it's a big player in the two-factor market. And over the last few years, Cisco has made several key acquisitions now. OpenDNS, SourceFire, CloudLock, and now Duo. And the latest deal is expected to close in the first quarter of Cisco's financial year of 2019. I think this is a great move by Cisco, and I personally believe we are about to see the next wave of two-factor authentication adoption, Wes. Unfortunately, 2018 is a dangerous time to use the internet, and having a robust form of second-factor authentication is a handy tool in your security toolbox. That said, there's really a whole lot more to discuss here, so if you'd like the TechSnap program to do a breakdown of all the different sorts of two-factor authentication available— what to use, what's best, and what are the different drawbacks between them, let us know. You can reach me at West Payne. 
Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of the TechSnap program and links and reference material to everything we talked about today at techsnap.systems slash 378. And we always have it nice and simple and clean like that. So every week's episode is just slash that number for the source material we talked about. And there's more over at that page as well. While you're at it, just go right over to techsnap.system slash subscribe for all the fantastic ways we have available to subscribe to this here show and with many more coming soon. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of the TechSnap program, and we will see you right back here next week. Next week.